Welcome to Heating Up, a podcast about climate change, our dangerous future, and what you can do about it. I'm Corinne. I'm Derek. And this is our podcast. Yeah, welcome. I think this is, we're getting dangerously close to episode 50. I think we're on like 45. It's only episode 50. You've got to be kidding me. Well, we've been doing it almost every other week for a little over a year. So. I was ready for you to say episode 200. <laughs> It feels like it really does. Uh, we're getting a close to fifty, so 50. yeah, I think we're on like forty-six, forty-seven, something like that. Okay, maybe we'll make it. <laughs> you know, we could still take a two-month hiatus and make it to fifty. We've done, We've it, done, before. done it before. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, this is why we don't have any sponsors. Mm. Uh, but HelloFresh, if you're interested. Mm-hmm. So, Corinne. Yes. How have you been in the past week? What's new and exciting? Back to work. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, finally got so disgusted with myself. I'm trying to live a healthier life again. Let's do this again. Yep. This is a fun game. Starting you know? to run again. I really, since turning 27, I've enjoyed this roller coaster of emotions where I <laughs> eat healthy and then say forget it and eat pizza for six months and then go back and forth. So goodbye pizza for a little while. No. Yeah. You know, I went on a run a couple times. We'll see if I can keep it up. Nice. Yeah. How about you? Uh, Yeah. Back to the gym. Back to trying to eat healthier. I knew that if I like just decided, all right, you're going to go 100%, get a a huge diet going, I'd just quit. I don't have that motivation in me. So I'm slowly like removing bad things from my diet first. It's just ranch, Derek. (laughs) No ranch. I I don't like ranch. Neither do I. You know what? I like it on specific things. If I'm eating onion rings, I like ranch. I don't even like onion rings. The whole onion rings themselves are probably the most overrated appetizer. I knew overrated you were going to hate onion rings because you're such a calamari freak. Calamari is... It, if there's a choice between onion rings I and calamari... Your choice is always calamari, no matter the choices. I feel like but that's not even a choice. I feel like the pure enemy of calamari is onion rings because of their similarity and you would probably had to eat onion rings instead of calamari and you'd have a like horrible visceral feeling about them but okay so onion rings or like buffalo wings buffalo wings are good i'll do with ranch yeah other than that i think because i managed a pizza restaurant for like 10 years and seeing drunk kids like drench pizza in ranch and then like drunkenly eat it while slopping all over their face has really ruined me to the whole dressing yeah it's disgusting don't like it on pizza don't like it on pretty much anything i feel like putting like a lot of people dip their vegetables in it a lot yeah which kind of defeats the point i think if you're just gonna eat raw broccoli like I think if you have trouble getting in the vit- the vitamins and you're not necessarily worried about the calories, it's a good way to go. Sure. The vitamins. And I will say that there's different types of ranch. Like the veggie dip ranch, I tend to prefer for the vet. Like, I'll do that on occasion. You know, a Christmas platter, someone will bring the veggie and Virginia. And, you know, you'll dip it in a little bit of ranch. Sure. So. Okay. Well, now that's our other podcast, Condiments Today. Condiments. <laughs> what do Corinne and Derek like to eat? Yeah. Fatty one and fatty two. All right. Uh, let's see. Anything else new and exciting? Um, nothing good. Nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of terribleness. Uh, let's see. Worldwide, COVID cases are up over 10 million now. I hear that um, 
COVID is the number one killer in America today. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, over, what, 500,000 people, 507,000 people worldwide died, have died over co- from COVID. Uh, is USA number one, number USA one? USA still number one, well, number one. Well, okay, to be fair, some other countries are probably doing a little bit to lizies. Yeah, that's true. But I think we're still beating them. Uh, you think we're beating Russia and China? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, because China, like, threw everything on lockdown. Like, China had a That's huge... That's they... But they actually, like, followed a lockdown. Right. Sure. <laughs> like, I mean, they had... Sure. It might have been a draconian imposing, <laughs> yeah. you know, lockdown from the government. Yes. But it worked. Yeah. Russia it just doesn't have enough people. Enough They're all people. spread out. Right. 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 So we're, like, the worst of all of it. Uh, in fact, the United Nations... Or the... Not the United European Nations. Union. European Union today just said that they're not going to allow Americans to come over there. None of our... They don't want any of our shithole country people going over there. I mean, I can't, can't disagree them. with them. But there uh, goes your escape plan. So. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having to plan a... Uh, our, our family's never going to go to Europe, I've determined, because <laughs> Dad is going to want to pick England every time. And at this point, I'm like, if I'm going to Europe, I want to go hard Europe, you know? I want to do Italy. Slovakia. No, no God. <laughs> so I, th- I thought you were talking about Europe. No, I want the, like, the I want the top hits. You know, I want your Italy's. I want your France. That stuff. And I'm like, you know what, England, not that different. So it's like us, but with so bad teeth and healthcare. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, European Union doesn't want us. Which, yeah, fair. fair. <laughs> um, other than that, all right, Corinne. This week we have legitimate prepper shit to do. Thank God. We are going to. Learn how to navigate without your phone. Yeah, the old school method. We're going to learn how to use a compass and a map and why that's important. Because okay. it's going to be good old is, prepper is skills. Is this going to be like when dad took me into the car and said, you need to sh- drop you, you in the woods. In the, uh, dropped you me in a weird area of South Sac and said, get us home as he screamed at me. I hope it's not like that. I mean, we could make it like that. Let's not. Okay. It was bad enough the first time. All right. It won't be like that. Okay. But, but first, we do have some news. I know mm. all of you are so excited. Last week we had just so much great news. Full news, because nobody's getting enough news. Nobody's here. getting enough news. We do. We want to cover the stories that have slipped through the cracks a little bit. That's kind of our our niche, I guess. Right? Is it? I Could wish be. it wasn't. Who knows? <laughs> so we've got what I think four news stories and then one nonsense story, as mm. we like. Okay. So are you ready? No. And the nor- they're not so bad this time. That's I mean, lie. they're bad, but they're not terrible. Okay. All right. So first story. Australia. Uh, no, Florida. Close. There's no- 50-50. There's no Australia this week either. Okay. So, well, give them a break. Yeah. Uh, but Florida, always in the news. This time, it's a story about the uh, poor manatees. Oh. Yeah. Manatees, you may remember, were controversially downgraded from endangered back in 2017. Mm. Uh, they had made a bit of a recovery from like the numbers that... They had initially started recording, but those numbers were so much lower than what they should have been. So it's like they're still... Either way, uh, they were making a comeback, uh, and cr- but the coronavirus is causing some unexpected challenges for the manatee. So far, the pandemic has led to a significant jump in unsafe boating activity in Florida. Oh, yeah, so that makes sense. So boating is one of the few things that didn't shut down, I guess, in Florida. Like, boat couldn't... docks were still open. Yeah. And it's like a, considered like a socially distant sort of thing. You can go out on your boat and stay away from other people. I get it. And so lots more people were going out on boats than would usually go out. That's and they were going crazy. out to, like, get their fun on. Yeah. And so they were speeding through the low speed zones and like over little manatees? that's the number oh, one huge. killer of manatees yeah boats boats running over i mean besides like natural causes or whatever like the number one like 
human cause. humans running them over because they speed through the little shallows and the warm water where the manatees Ugh. like hang out and they're just they can't move out of the way they're not fast they're very moving creatures big. yeah so uh the save the manatees club which is a non-profit said manatees are already facing accelerated habitat loss uh rising fatalities from boat collisions and less regulatory protection with covid we're seeing manatees at an increased risk both from policies that undermine environmental standards and from irresponsible outdoor activity uh, earlier in the pandemic, a 1,600-pound pregnant manatee was hit by a boat near Siesta Key. Uh, she was rescued and delivered a healthy calf, but she, she herself died. is still in critical condition. Oh, okay. So hasn't died yet. Um, hopefully she pulls out of it. She didn't have a, no name listed in this thing. So Female manatee. I mean, manatees, they really have names, truly. I, I would name it. Yeah, but they don't care about names. They're wild. Maybe not. They don't care about it, but, you know, we care about it. Okay. Give that manatee a name and give it a GoFundMe. Okay. Let's see. In June, a manatee swimming off the coast of southern Florida collided with a vessel, causing a rib fracture and a punctured lung. These sort of collisions, this is a sad fact that I found out while researching this, Corinne. Great. Uh, the collisions with boats, like I said, are so common that researchers use scars from boat collisions as a way to identify individual manatees. So okay, like, so they l- survive some of them. Yeah, sure. Unless they hit that <laughs> propeller real good. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's really sad that, like, the way we can identify one manatee from the other is how many times and where it's been hit by a boat. Great. God damn it. Uh, beyond pressing immediate challenges, the pandemic is also affecting longer-term efforts for conservation. Uh, social distancing has re- uh, necessitated delays in projects that were, you know, that require like in-person meetings or whatever mm-hmm. that, you know, could have restored habitat. So including uh, a plan to breach the Akawala Dam, which would provide warm water habitat for manatees. The biggest problem, however, is regulatory changes that threaten the manatees ecosystem. A number of deregulation efforts, like we've said before, we've talked a little bit about how the Trump administration has been using... Open game. Yeah, basically said you can go ahead and pollute and self-report. You can do all sorts of other stuff. And then they're passing a lot of deregulatory efforts, like a hundred different restrictions are trying to be removed during this COVID-19. They're just using it as as a way to roll back all sorts of environmental things. And that'll have a bigger long-term effect. Because, like, the short-term, yeah, a few more boats are hitting a few more manatees, but that's small potatoes. Like, that's an individual boat hits an individual manatee. But when you deregulate entire industries, that can decimate entire ecosystems. So, you know, it's rough for the manatee right now. (sighs) Is that it for that one? That's it for that one. Great. All right, moving on. That's probably the saddest story we have. Well, mm. no, there's one more sad story. <laughs> but the next story is not, not as sad. Okay. It's basically, we're going to talk about how coronavirus is now impacting the way in which we're going to be fighting fires. So okay. it's July now. Yep. Uh, fire season has started already. It's always fire season. It's always fire season. But the, the real traditional fire season has already gotten underway. A couple of big fires going on in Arizona already. A bunch of fires here in California. But unfortunately, coronavirus adds like another wrinkle to the already challenging how how? couple of ways. The first way, so it causes a lot of uncertainty, first off, in how they're going to be able to fight fires. Because a lot of times firefighters move from state to state and across county lines or country lines even. And so with the restrictions on travel, are we going to be able to get firefighters? So oftentimes during the peak of fire season here... Because it's winter in the southern hemisphere, firefighters from Australia or uh, you know Argentina will come up and help fight fires in California. So you have California like a trade fire. going on, like yeah. we send ours and theirs. And exactly, okay. but that's going to be you know messed up because of travel restrictions, especially since we don't have it under control. So a country like Australia is not going like, to want us to come over there. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, so yeah, there's going to be problems for that. There's going to be problems as far as getting all the resources they need because, as you know, when you order things nowadays, it takes a little longer to get them out to you. Sure. 
Um, other issues are fire camps, right? Normally speaking, when there's a big fire, firefighters, you know, basically converge in giant, you know, couple of thousand people, large camps with giant trailers and tents, and they get like a military base. They feed them all at mass tables and yeah. whatever else, and they're all bunked they together. They can't do that can't do that so now they have to have a lot of smaller camps spread out so logistically there's a lot of problems the other issue is just getting sick so if firefighters yeah. do get sick you're just going to get less of them out there fighting the fires right yeah. and one major issue that they're worried about as far as that goes is smoke inhalation uh, a study earlier this month published in environmental international uh, suggested that an especially active wildfire season in the summer was associated with more cases of influenza in the winter how so, does that work? Yeah, wildfire smoke carries dangerous particles uh, called particulate matter 2.5 or PM 2.5, which can harm a person's lung and immune system. Great, so like, just what you need. So you inhale these you know, particles as just fighting fires and you're already kind of weakened your lungs and immune system. So things that attack your lungs and immune system like influenza. So firefighters are even more susceptible to coronavirus. Exactly. Eesh. And so, you know, they're not clear how that's going to affect it, but these firefighters then are very high risk for getting it. And then if they get it, then they can't really fight the fires anymore. Too. And yeah, more severe form than they would get if they weren't fighting fires. And then the last issue with it is we kind of, I think, talked about this a little bit before, but refugee camps. So like when a fire does come in and rolls into a town and people have to evacuate, those evacuation centers are other places where, you know, infectious diseases can spread yeah. like wildfire. Get it? Uh, like wildfire. Oh, so they're dealing with issues like that. So right now, as the fire season's starting to ramp up, a lot of talk about how... COVID-19 just adds another layer, you know what they can making do? it even harder. They can just replicate what the prisons have been doing to keep every... Oh. No, I can't do that. Can't do yeah, that. Prisons have not done them. very well. <laughs> Sorry. Just yeah. kidding. We have two more stories, Corinne. Give me the sad one now. All right. Yeah. So Puerto Rico, again, can never catch a break, Why it seems. Why are we all... Do it, can we just let them go? <laughs> Let them go. Let's stop, stop having any pretending that they're part of a America. United States. They'd probably be better be off. Better yeah. off. But uh, unfortunately, Puerto Rico is experiencing a severe drought in many parts of the country right now. So despite it being an island and in the Caribbean, it's severe drought. Well, you can't drink seawater. Yeah, you can't drink seawater. Uh, so uh, residents are having their water on every other day right now. So they're doing water restrictions in Puerto Rico. So again, and this is a country that's still recovering from the various hurricanes right. that they've had over the recent years. Um, so a lot of people are still without power on the island. There's still a lot of major issues on Puerto Rico. And just to add on top of it, this water rationing where now r most residents now have to basically get water every other day in the middle of a pandemic. So they also have coronavirus. So it's, it's just like we've so talked about before. So hand washing is harder without hand, having water every yeah, day. Yeah, very difficult to wash your hands or even just drink water or, you know, do whatever yeah. when you have to ration it like that. So not great in Puerto Rico. So they're asking people to use moderation and then they have the water trucks. And because it's an island as well, getting fresh water Ugh. to the island is its own logistical they problem. They can't just steal it from somewhere else like we do in the lower 50, you know. Yeah, we can't just siphon, 48. you know, just stick another straw in the Colorado. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they've got what they got and getting it there requires boats and planes and logistics, which is in of itself all kind of messed up due to coronavirus. Yeah. So not great. And then our last story, Corinne, Real quick, not too bad on the news today, I don't think. So, Louisiana activists charged with terrorism for nonviolent stunt targeting plastics grant. Uh, targeting plastics what? Sorry, targeting plastics giant. Giant. Two leaders of a long-running fight for environmental justice in Louisiana turned themselves in to Baton Rouge police on Thursday morning. 
the activist who worked in part of the state known as Cancer Alley, faced what? charges for terrorizing related to nonviolent protest action. So, civil liberties attorneys are calling the charges a dramatic escalation of years-long effort by the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries to criminalize protests around climate change. So we've talked about this before, yeah. states imposing these terrorism charges and whatever On else. peaceful, nonviolent protests. Sure, yeah. The activists in question, Ann Rolfs and Kate McIntosh, uh, stem from a seemingly harmless, uh, the charges stem from a seemingly harmless activist stunt carried out in December, the day after a festival designed to draw attention to the environmental misdeeds of Formosa Plastics. Formosa Plastics is a Taiwanese petro- petrochemical company and is planning on building a new massive plastics manufacturing complex in the largely black Louisiana community, one that has already suffered major health problems linked to local plastics industry. Uh, In October, Formosa agreed to a $50 million settlement for dumping pollutants, including these small pellets uh, that form the building blocks of plastic. So they're these tiny, like, I don't even know, they're called nurdles, which is a weird name. It's fun to say, but they're these, like, kind of toxic plastic pellets uh they but then formosa just dumped them into uh, texas's lavaca bay and that 50 million dollars was the largest settlement of a clean water act lawsuit ever filed by private clients interesting but they want to expand and the state wants to let them expand because why not so the action so this like festival that they had was dubbed nurdle fest which sounds really cool i wish i could have gone yeah uh was this was back in december before corona was a thing Uh, was meant to pressure the state's Department of Environmental Quality to scrutinize the company's record. And as part of that, boxes of these plastic pellets, uh, which were used as evidence in the Texas case, were carted onto the front of the agency. So they left giant boxes of the pellets that the company themselves dumped into the environment on the company's doorstep. And this is a lot like those people that like bring the fracking water to the you know yeah, executives yeah. or whatever and they're scared of it because it's terrible and they know it. What led to the charge of terrorism, however, was that a container of the pellets uh, were then left on the porch of an oil and gas lobbyist with a detailed note explaining what they were and their origin. Uh, we have delivered this package of nurdles as a reminder. Louisiana does not need any more pollution, plastics, or otherwise, the letter said. We demand that uh, Formosa's air emissions permit be denied. Baton Rouge Police Department apparently agreed that the plastic particles were threatening and said that a note was observed on the top of the package indicating not to open the container. The note that the activists left with the package uh, discouraged uh, people against removing the nurdles and told them that not to leave it alone around children or pets and then listed a number to which they could call to safely recycle the pellets. Okay, so they're basically saying like, well, I thought maybe there was a bomb in there. Even though the package said this thing has nurdles, don't open it. Don't leave it around children. They're just trying Here's to, a phone number to call to get rid of it. They're trying to warp the wording to make it seem like they were afraid for their lives. Sure. So Rolfs and McIntosh, who are respectively the director of and program assistant at the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, which provides support for groups of community members living near polluting facilities, uh, face a maximum of 15 years in prison 15 and $15,000 in fine for terrorizing. That is like the most light and easy... I mean... They literally left a note with a number to get rid of the thing, and then that's These terrorism. aren't cool, guys, but please recycle them now that I've given them to you. Yeah. Come on! Uh, the charges, uh, of course, come at the heels of a series of incidents where environmental activists have been dealt heavy charges in Louisiana. In August 2018, Louisiana legislatures passed a law establishing a new felony charge for anyone who trespasses on critical infrastructure facilities. So this is like uh, in the aftermath of the Dakota Access Pipelines, Louisiana was one of those places that passed a law. 
And then in October, police charged Gregory Manning, a legally blind pastor of Broadmoor Community oh, Church and member of the Coalition Against Death Alley with a felony for allegedly inciting a riot. Uh, what riot did he incite? Yeah, the Please. blind man uh, said that... Or so blind pastor. Blind pastor. Uh, failed to immediately leave a hallway outside the office of the Louisiana Association Perhaps of he couldn't find his way. Right. What? So they charged him with a felony. I guess those charges were later dropped. What does mean? But yeah, exactly. How fast does this blind guy need to go walk out he's of the alley? He's got to figure his, got his bearings straight. Sure, yeah. But he's clearly a danger uh, to the rest of the world here. So now, can we donate to these poor people to get them out of prison or pay for their legal fees so i couldn't find an actual like gofundme for their account but the louisiana bucket brigade the organization that they run Mm -hmm. uh does accept donations on their website which is labucketbrigade.org okay so if you are interested in helping them i'm sure that would be a great place to either contact or donate to Mm -hmm. so yeah that's some bullshit that's happening lovely yeah, and ma- just making it even harder. And of course, this is designed to have a chilling effect on everyone else. So well, we're all supposed to. You better to... be afraid. Don't do it. Exactly. Yeah. So to prevent other people from actively fighting those that are well, here's destroying the thing: the they turned themselves in. Did they? They must have known exactly who did it, or are they just charging the people who are the head of the organization? Well, I'm sure that their name was on something or whatever okay. else, and like the the police department called their lawyer because they already had a lawyer. Well, because I think we need to make clear: you can do stuff like this without getting caught. <laughs> That's right? true. Because well, I remember mean, those two girls who were dismantling Keystone Pipeline and they turned themselves in because they were never going to get caught and they wanted people to know how easy it was? There's more. Th- so in, in recent court documents on that case, it seems like the FBI had started to narrow in on them. Uh, they hadn't said anything publicly, obviously, but in some of the like details of the case, it does seem like they had kind of become. After they did how many? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it does seem like it's possible to get away with some stuff. And I mean, obviously, people get away with crimes all, all the time. Not yeah. that, you know, we're advocating some, that. Certainly but, not. But if you were going to commit a crime, you might not get But away. I mean, if you're going to commit a crime, this isn't even really what I would call a crime. Not even they a left crime. a box of the pollutants that the company themselves dumped in the river on the guy's desk with a note with a number to call to get rid of it. Yeah. Like, hard to call that really terrorizing people. And if that's terrorism, think about the millions of those little nurdles that the company dumped in Who, the public space. In the space. bellies of the, all the fishes in the or world. Or people or everything, people, yeah. yeah. So, ridiculous. And, yeah, like, designed to chill environmental protests. So, designed to... Don't be afraid. Yeah, don't be afraid of it. Hopefully this case gets thrown out. We'll kind of keep following it. And as we said, uh, LABucketBrigade.org is a place you can probably reach out to if you are interested in helping in their legal defense. All right. Uh, We have... That's all our news. Great. We have the nonsense story, and it's about geoengineering. It's one of your favorites. I put this in there because I know you love it. They're throwing up some more dirt? Yeah. Actually, yes. No, they are not. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, we at the Heating Up Podcast have a long documented history of being (laughs) anti-geoengineering. Okay, hold on. We're not anti-geoengineering. Yes, we are. (laughs) Anti-it not being logical at all. Okay? (laughs) If If they came up with something that was like legit that'd be cool well i feel like it's simply a stopgap that doesn't actually address the real problem so it's like it's addressing the the symptom rather than the actual cause of the disease okay but if someone came up with a genius idea and we were all proved wrong we'd admit it either way that's not what this is so uh we are not alone (laughs) though corinne in our hatred of geoengineering uh back in early june a coalition of over 200 environmental groups uh, which for some reason forgot to ask us to join them. We'll let them uh, know next yeah, time. Yeah, clearly. 
uh, released a statement condemning recent geoengineering schemes as uh, distracting technofixes yeah. that violate international moratoriums. As we know, about 90% of the heat produced by the greenhouse effect is actually absorbed by the world's oceans, right? And this is causing all sorts of problems. Right. Not the least, it causes those massive bleaching events that are killing the world's reefs. What, are they going to put up a big reflector? No, it's better than that. It literally, it's one of your throw some dirt on it stories. Okay. Uh, so, to try and stop this, countries have been spraying trillions of microscopic salt crystals into the air above the Great Barrier Reef. And so, the idea is that the salt will mix with low-altitude clouds, because this is like, you know, this isn't like salt you'd use on your table. This is microscopic, sure. right? So, it stays, it's dust. But... It basically will make the clouds more reflective. Oh my god, they're doing exactly what I thought. And so the sun will hit the cloud and, and reflect more light. Bounce out to the to to yeah. the space. Yeah, more light will because re- clouds do reflect some light. Obviously, that's what happens. But this will make them more efficient at reflecting sunlight, so less light will actually come through and hit the the direct area above the reef. Uh, in theory, whose brilliant idea was this? Can we credit this genius? I think this is Australia. Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> I think this is the country of Australia. Um, Obviously, the Great Barrier Reef is there. But, of course, this is a clear violation of the 2010 UN moratorium on ocean geoengineering. Mm. Uh, Although they get away with it saying, well, we're actually geoengineering the sky, not the ocean. Uh, But that's again, goes (laughs) to the the point of these things. We're the good guys, we swear. But anyways, other marine geoengineering projects currently undergoing testing include injecting glass microbubbles into the sea ice in Alaska and Canada. What? Yeah, again, in the hope that they reflect more sunlight. Guys. Uh, That project has already been opposed by indigenous groups in the area. Uh, In waters off the coast of Chile and Peru, one firm has begun an ocean fertilization project aimed at promoting the growth of plankton, which consume carbon dioxide. And the organization that, you know, is opposing geoengineering, those 200 groups, say that large-scale technofixes like this could create, you know, giant dead zones in the ocean. Uh, which, you know, is also not great as the deoxygenated water because the plankton. Uh, it's just the potential for disaster with all of these projects is so have high. some smart people on these? Get some smart ones on it. Well, I mean, these are smart people is Who the problem. Who are these smart people? The problem is that they're not looking at the same problem. Like, okay. you and I look they're at... They're solving really narrow-mindedly. Yeah, so, okay. like, they, well, their solution is like, well, we're not going to stop burning fossil fuels. We're not going to stop yeah. pumping carbon. So let's do something to mitigate the effects of pumping carbon, when the reality is we need to stop it at the source, right? Yeah, this is not really addressing the real issue. So it never will work very well. That's why we don't like geoengineering around here. Embarrassing. It is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed. I'm a little sad they didn't invite us to join their little party. Yeah, two hundred had 201. Yeah, we'll sign our name. Somebody contact us. You heard it here we'll first. We'll still join your group, though, yeah. even though we're offended. We'll do it now. <laughs> we'll take back our offense. <laughs> do truce, don't make a rude. Yep, that's the news, Corinne. Thank God. All right. Not bad. Okay, yeah, better than la- last time was terrible. Not bad. Really bad. Never again. Never again. Well, a couple weeks from now. Right. All right. Are you ready for the prepping segment today? Yes. I will say I'm not great with maps or compasses. Well, that's why we do it. But I am better at this than tying knots. Okay. So here we go. Yeah. Uh, this definitely brought me back to my Boy Scout days. Yes. Because that was when I learned how to do this the first time. And I was a little rusty in trying some of this stuff on my own here in the last week. But I feel like I got the hang of it again. It's like riding a bicycle. Uh, you know, it's frustrating and it hurts. <laughs> and you're too old now. And yeah, too old. <laughs> it's, no. Uh, but yeah, for this week's prepper skill, we're going to learn some basic navigation. So really not too long ago, basic navigation was a lot more universal as a yeah. skill. 
Um, like even in my day, you know, I started driving before GPS was really a thing or anyone had like smartphones. And so you had to rely on like these little books that were Tom. Here, I, I did Thomas find this out. Guide. So in California, they were called the Thomas Guides and they were like indexes, you know, a couple hundred pages big and they yeah. were like uh, spiral bound. They're pretty and, big. Yeah. In the back, you could look up any street in the city. So you'd have a Thomas Guide to Sacramento, right? Uh And it would have every street name in Sacramento in the back. And you would look it up, and then it would tell you what page it's on. And you would, you know, do it by a square. And that was how you would find your directions to go anywhere. I did find out, which I guess makes sense, that Thomas Guides is really only a California thing. Okay. Uh, so I guess there must have been local companies everywhere else. I'm sure Boston or New but York had their own. We're going to wrap our local Thomas guide. So, but I if, had one in my car. If you were in LA <laughs> or Cal- like they started in LA and they like expanded out from there, so they were really popular. That was like the local. It was like Kleenex, where the name yes. brand replaced the thing. Yes. Uh, so Thomas Guides was what it was called here in California. I'm sure it was something else everywhere else. But they got bought by Rand McNally a couple of years ago, and they don't even publish mm-hmm. them anymore. Wow. But anyways, I would have thought you could still buy one. No, they they stopped publishing them in 2014, I think. Wow. Well, at least I think they only publish like LA now. Like in Sacramento, the last one was 2014. But regardless, my point is that now pretty much no one knows how to do this, navigate without G, you know, GPS or their smartphone. And using a GPS and using a smartphone is obviously very reliant on a technology that can fail you in the event of an emergency. Sure. Right? So the battery could go out, the phone itself could break or get wet. Uh, you know, it could be shut off by the government. Could be could, too overloaded. Could be too overloaded. Could be too many people using it, right? Could just simply not have any signal, yeah. right? All these things could cause your phone to become just a really expensive, fragile brick. Yes. And then if that's the case, you might need to know how to get from someplace to someplace else. And beyond that, if you're ever out in the woods, you probably won't have access to a or Your phone probably won't GPS work anyways. Is, yeah. So there are, like, nowadays these, like, satellite GPS sure, units, which sure, are expensive sure. and whatever else. But again, they're electronic. They rely on, you know, you pieces of technology. could have dropped it in the water. Could have lost it. Or could have eaten it. Yep. Could not work at all. Could just not get the satellite. So knowing old school compass and map navigation is a great skill to have just in life in general and certainly it's prepper adjacent. So we're going to kind of go over that right now. I feel like I have sat through both the Boy Scout and the Girl Scout compass and map guides in my life. And you still don't know how and to do I it very well. And I am still terrible at it. All right. So when you're thinking about navigation... The first item you need, we've already mentioned it, of course, is a map. That's the most important item that you need to Which get. Which is hard to find. Yeah, these are harder to find now. Again, if you are of a certain age, like I'm closer to 40 than not now, and I remember when maps were plentiful. You could walk yeah. into any like 7-Eleven and there were racks of maps at the front. Try finding that now. Like we said, those Thomas guides, they stopped printing 90% of them uh, you know, dec- like a decade ago. And so finding a Thomas guide for your local area is probably a good idea. In fact, I, you know, in doing this research, I bought a used copy Did of the really? latest Sacramento one just to have it. I feel like that's a good prep everyone should get. Because I think I threw my 2004 version out probably five or six years ago exactly. and said, forget it, I don't need you. So I'm thinking, oh, that's probably a bad call. So trying to find old copies of these Thomas guides might not be a bad thing to add to your prep. So that's one type of map that I think anyone yeah. who drives around or lives in a large, like, you know, urban setting should have is a physical road guide, a road atlas that, you know, shows detailed streets. Because that's the problem. But the, the hard thing is going to be streets have changed since they were last printed at this point. For sure. But you're still going to get the big Basics. streets. You know, that'll help you get out or get around in a neighborhood when, you know, when or if the system's down. 
So I think like that's just a good thing to have. So that's one type of map. The other type of map we're going to talk about is probably the most useful for actually navigating in the woods or wilderness or anywhere, and that's a topographic map. So topographic maps are maps that show elevation. So these maps, I'm sure everyone has seen some image of them. They have like the circles on them, mm -hmm. and those circles sh are a way to... Uh, show elevation on a flat surface <laughs> yeah so the straightest route from point a to point b is generally not the best way to go in any real surface because there's hills and valleys and mountains and canyons lakes and, and lakes and so looking on a map will definitely help you with that the thing about maps all maps is that you need to worry about scale right sure so having a map at a proper scale is important for prepping and this is something that I think a lot of people get wrong because we want to get a map that covers every scenario. So we're like, oh, I've got this giant map of the entire state of California. Okay, well, guess what? Finding your way around Sacramento is going to be hard with that map. Exactly. Or like, you know, if the only map you have is a globe, right, you're going to yeah. have a real hard time navigating, yeah. you know, even from, you know, huge Texas distances. Texas to California. Sure. So if you're out actually hiking, like, on the trails, the most important map that you're going to find or that's easy to find is the maps that are put out by the U.S. Geological Survey, the United States Geological Survey, and they're called 7.5-minute uh, maps. Okay. And uh, you don't really need to know this, but they're at a scale of 1 to 24,000. All right. And uh, they are the most detailed and, therefore, the most useful in actually navigating on, a gra on the ground because they show the most detail, right? Right. The closer you zoom in, the better. Yeah. That 7.5 minutes comes from 7.5 minutes of latitude and 7.5 minutes of longitude. And again, you don't really need to understand what that means, but it means that each of these maps is approximately 8 miles square, you know, north to south by 6 miles east to west. Okay. <laughs> Does that make sense? So yeah. you're talking about a map that's about 8 by 6 miles it covers. Yeah. And so it's got really detailed because that's really zoomed in. Mm-hmm. And these maps are, again, sold by the United States Geological Survey. You can pick them up pretty much at any, like, sporting goods store, or you can order them online from the Geo, Geo Survey themselves. They're fairly cheap, and anybody who's ever been, like, backpacking or hiking will be familiar with these type of maps. Okay. They do make one that's called a 15-minute map, and again, that's a little bit more zoomed out, mm -hmm. right? Uh, those are fairly useful as well for larger distances, basically double the distance. Anything larger than that is going to be too big to really see the terrain the way you want to when you're out navigating in the woods. I'm seeing a map right here that says 1 to 100,000 Yeah, scale. so this is a map that is too big to really helpfully navigate in the woods. probably good if you're traveling from Sacramento to, say, Sequoia Canyon, you know, Sequoia National Park. It'll get you there. But within those, sure. not so great. Yeah, so those are the two maps that are kind of really important to think about when discussing, like, for a prepper-related thing. You want a map of the local area that's, you know, kind of the road atlas if you live in an urban area, and then you're going to want specific local topographic maps for any area that you're camping or hiking or could possibly be walking through. Those are the two maps we're really going to talk about. All right. Beyond a map, the next thing that you need to really navigate a place is a compass. Mm-hmm. So... These things always seemed like a trick to me. Yeah, they compasses are a piece of equipment that are really useful if you know how to use them. If you don't know how to use them, they just take up space in your bag. Yep. So, but they're super simple to learn how to use, and they're, mm. they can be very, very, very useful to keep you from getting lost. Sure, in theory. I mean, they're basically a crucial piece of information, and anytime you're out on the trail, so anytime you're backpacking or hiking or anywhere where there's the potentiality of getting lost in the woods, you should have a map and compass. Basically standard crucial equipment. Yeah. 
it always seemed to me that there's too many things on the compass. Yeah, well, well that's great, Corinne, because we're going to talk about the things on the compass okay. here in just a minute. I'm always like, okay, I get where the N is. That's all I need now. <laughs> all right? right? Sure. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how a compass works. Uh, basically, it's a magnet, right? And it's shaped like a needle mounted on a pivot. So mm-hmm. the magnet is allowed to freely turn, and that magnet turns to magnetic north. Right. right. I've made magnets before. Yeah. Or not magnets, but compasses. Magnetized like, yes. needles and stuff. Yeah. It's a trick kids do where you like rub a needle or something and put it in water. Um, those are obviously not as accurate as a nice store-bought compass. That said, a, a compass will, you know, reliably indicate direction, right? So sure. you can use a compass. Anybody can look at it and tell which direction is north. And once you have north, you have south. And once you have north and south, you can get east and west. Sure. But Once you comp- have north, you can get anything else. So that said, without certain crucial features, a compass isn't really that helpful. Mm. Um, so your average compass that you can buy will contain quite a few other useful markings that are on it. Confusing markings, yeah. some might say. The most uh, more important of which are the base plate, which is basically that plastic piece that the compass sits on top of. Normally mm. it's square or rectangular. That's useful in helping find, you know direction like on a map like when you're drawing you know when you're you know basically plotting a course having okay. those, that base plate is important and then the other thing that's important is the azimuth ring or a rotating bezel and that's the part that spins on a compass so okay. when you get your compass there's a thing that is normally marked out like yeah. to 360 degrees uh-huh. that can spin around freely mm-hmm. while you hold the compass and is that good because you can move the north to north and then you don't have to think about where is south where is east all that yeah, so the bezel uh, will help you basically orientate in the wild. Without having to think, like, okay, so if this is north, then this will just show you, basically. Yeah, it can do that, and you can. it'll help you find your declination, which is, we'll talk about in a minute, okay. which is an important aspect. So those are the two biggest, uh, you know, things that any real, any good compass will have. Um, and a good compass isn't that expensive. You can go, I looked online, you can go to REI.com and buy a compass that has everything you could ever possibly want for about 25 bucks. Mm. Now, that said, uh, you can get a compass that has a few other key aspects which are important to you, that could be important to you. Uh, the first one of which is a compass that has declination adjustment. Any capable compass for hikers or other trail users should definitely have this. Declination is the difference in degrees between true north and magnetic north. Oh, no. Yeah, so we all know that magnetic north is not exactly the north pole, right? So on a map, it's all oriented towards north-north. Towards, But then the compass is oriented towards... The magnetic north, oh, which is a few BS. degrees off. And so those few degrees actually matter quite a bit when you're trying to like find it's, a direction in the wild. Could save you some trouble. Well, yeah, could, that's the difference between being on the path and not being on the path. Um, so the process of finding out that difference and factoring yeah, that into you. Well, that's what we're going to do, Corinne. That sounds that's, so hard. It's not that hard. <laughs> and one of the things that makes that a lot easier is having a compass that allows you to adjust your declination. So what this is is you basically can set the compass to automatically adjust for that declination, and then you don't have to worry about it. So if you're out hiking in an area, most topographic map, well, not most, every U.S. Geological Survey map and any map that's worth its salt that's sold to, like, actual hikers will have the declination on it. So it'll say, put your true north at 20. Yeah, it'll say, well, so true north in North America is usually between 20 degrees uh, east or 20 degrees west declination, different from magnetic north. 
Okay. And so the map will show you how, and we're going to talk about how to do that later. But basically, with a declination adjustment, you set it and you forget about it. That way, you don't have to keep doing the math. Mm -hmm. If your compass doesn't have it, you're going to have to do a little bit more math. Ooh, so, I'm so definitely bad at saves math. you the math if you can do this. So that's a, and again, this is something that most compasses, including this cheap one where I got for like 15 bucks, mm -hmm. uh, can do. Did you buy it recently, or did you just happen to have I it? I had it. I've had that one for a long time. Okay. But uh, I've got a little compass out here on the table, guys. So Corinne's playing I'm with playing it. Playing with it. So that's like kind of an important upgrade for compasses. And if you plan to do any hiking or backpacking, it's pretty much mandatory to have one that can do this, unless you're really good at doing math. Other features that aren't 100% needed for the normal person, but that could be important, depending on what you're trying to do, are a sighting mirror. So you've seen those compasses that kind of have a flip open mirror. I don't know, Corinne, have you seen what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, those are really good if you plan to travel off trail and want like more precise navigation for that. What? Otherwise, Why? you don't really need it. I always just thought that that was for like checking your teeth. Yeah, that's what it's for. <laughs> a, a clinometer, C-L-I-N-O meter, clinometer. Uh, this is for mountaineering and backcountry skiing. Uh, this is actually something that can help you assess avalanche hazards. Rich so this is nerds. something that field scientists and search and rescue <laughs> professionals really definitely want on their okay, uh, sure. compasses. Or anyone who's doing any hiking in the winter in an area that might have an avalanche would probably want one that does you're this. you talking about skiers, and I was like, rich nerds don't like them. Yeah, well, so it's not something that you know your average Joe would need. Sure. And then a global needle. So the other thing about True North... or compasses is if you switch hemispheres so compasses oh, that work in the north brother. don't necessarily always work right. like in the south southern hemisphere but a global needle works both ways so it'll say but on the package you're likely to be traveling globally you anytime know, soon you might have some yeah not anytime <laughs> soon but we might have some world travelers out there in which case they probably already know about needing to yeah. get a global needle and again none of these are incredibly expensive to add to a compass but if those are things that you need to do those are some you know important uh you know, add-ons. This for compass, compass also has a ruler. Yes, most compasses on the uh, the base plate will have some sort of like markings on them, and that'll help you just you know draw lines and things on your map. All right, Corinne. Now you've got your compass, right? With all the bells and whistles that mm -hmm. you need, mm -hmm. you spend twenty, twenty-five, thirty bucks on a compass. Or easy. I just steal one of yours. Whatever. Or you can just steal an extra because I got a wall of compasses. MJ's got a few. I know she does. Sure, but you got to make sure it has the rotating bezel and all those things. Yeah, right? she's got it. Yeah. Now you need to know how to use that compass. Sure. Right? So step one is doing what we talked about, we threatened about, and that's adjusting the declination. Mm. So let's get into a little bit more detail here. All right. North on a map is pretty easy to find, right? Yeah. It's up. Up. Yeah. But setting your compass on the map, you can see that there's a magnetic north difference uh, between that and what's real north. So mm -hmm. if you just set your compass in line to point north, the actual arrow will point slightly to the left or right, depending on where you are in the United States yep. or the world. So what you want to do is adjust that azimuth so that it actually fixes it. Now, you need to find the declination value for the area in which you are hiking or walking around. Topographic maps will have this on the map. So this will appear normally by the key as a little declination diagram. It'll show a straight line and then a line off to the left or right and then a degree. So for this map here in Sacramento, the declination... And it literally says declination diagram. Yeah, and it says 14.8. Okay. Let so declinate you. Nope, Corinne, you don't know how. I was going to try. haven't gotten that far yet. 
So every compass has a way to set it slightly differently. Oh. Um, so definitely read the instructions or there's a million YouTube videos. Like you type in the brand of compass. And okay. that's what I did for this one because I'd forgotten how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I typed in the brand and it showed me exactly how to do it. But what you're going to do basically is set the compass so that it's straight and lined up. And then you're going to kind of adjust the declination 13 or 14.8 degrees here for Sacramento. And what that'll do is now north is actually pointing north. And so then when you're making adjustments and you're making, uh, sorry, when you're taking bearings later, they'll actually be accurate bearings, which is important when you're giving directions to people. Okay. Now, if you can't adjust the declination on your compass, you can simply subtract 14.8 from 360 and you'd get the proper bearing. But who wants to do that math all the time? If you forget even once when you're doing all this, all of your numbers will be off. So it's a lot easier to have a, a, a compass that can adjust it. So once you've done that, you're good. Your compass is set and ready to use for your area. And if you never leave that area, you never have to really reset it. I wonder how far... The, I, never mind. Keep going. It goes for a little bit. And again, each map will show you what it's at. And again, the more obviously little marks around the azimuth, the more accurate your compass will be. So mine is 14.8. Getting to that point eight is going to be kind of difficult, right? So, you, you know, on close. this compass, you'll get close. On a better, more expensive compass, there's going to be more markings on the outside, more little hashtags that'll allow you to be way more accurate with your settings. Okay. So. Well, once, not actual hashtags, young listeners. Or whatever they call them, marks, uh, lines. Indications. Indicators. Whatever. Next step, map reading. Correlating what you see on the paper to what you see around you. Right? That's hard. There's a big disconnect there, I think, for yeah. me. Yeah, and it's a foundational skill that really requires practice, right? Uh, you've heard, you know, there's the cliche, the map is not the terrain, right? Um, that's one of the nice things about having a topographic map is it helps you pick out landmarks that are pretty obvious to spot, like mountains. Sure. Or oceans. canyons. Or, well, oceans are on every map, but on a topographic Rivers map, and lakes. you can see things that are like uh, hills or steep cliffs and things like that that you wouldn't see on a flat map. Gotcha. Once you've set your declination, map orientation is simple. You get out into a nice place where you can see the, the landmarks around you. So in the middle of a nice you know, open area where you can see the mountains or the building or the lake or river, whatever items you're using to kind of orientate yourself, mm -hmm. and you set your map flat down on the ground. Then you're going to set your compass right on top of the map, and you're going to set your compass with the direction travel of travel aerial pointing towards the top of the map. The direction of travel arrow is the generally really large arrow that points straight up on a compass. Mm -hmm. You're going to rotate that bezel so that the north is lined up with the direction of travel arrow. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to slide the base plate until one of its straight edges aligns with either the left or right edge of your map. So you're saying slide it to the left or the right so it hits the end of the map. Yep. And then... While holding both the map and compass steady, so it's nice to do this on a table or like a you know fallen you know log or something, or on a flat piece of ground or rock, rotate your body until the end of the magnetic needle is within the outline of the orienteering arrow. So on the compass, there's a, like an outline of an arrow that you try and line up the red north with. You just kind of rotate yourself and the map until they're lined up. Okay. And now you'll see. So now you're basically standing there facing north once that red arrow is lined up in like mm -hmm. the outline of it yeah you're facing north the compass is facing north and the, the map. map is facing north okay and that from makes there sense. you can start picking out landmarks on the map mm -hmm. so look at the map if you see a mountain that should be off to your right 
look to your right. If you see it on your that, left, oopsie yeah. daisies. Right. With a mountain on you. Or if there's supposed to be a lake to your left, look, find that lake. Okay, now I've oriented myself to this map, right? Spend mm-hmm. a little bit of time hanging out, picking out landmarks that you can see, and then you've oriented Ugh, I've yourself. I've definitely been at a picnic bench with you doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and being like, can you just figure it out already? Yeah, so you should take some time, again, anytime you travel, to orientate yourself like this to figure out what's around you um, and keep reading your map along the way. So again, every now and then while you're hiking, stop, redo this process because once you've done it a couple of times, it doesn't take very long to do. Mm-hmm. And that way you stay found. Like it's way easier to stay oriented than, than to it find is yourself. to find yourself all the time. So that said... Now you've done it, you can find your direction, you can follow yourself through a map. Even if you're not following a trail, you can kind of know where you are at any given moment. Though I must say trails are great. Yeah. That said, sometimes you want to travel where there is no trail. And in that case, it can be very helpful to take a bearing. I'm sure you've all heard somebody take a bearing. You get my bearing straight. Exactly. So a bearing is simply a navigationally precise way to describe a direction. So instead of saying, you know, we're heading northwest, right? To get to a campsite, you would follow a bearing of 320 degrees. Mm, that sounds confusing. Right? Well, that's where all those numbers around the outside of the bezel come in. Mm-hmm. So bearings are always relative to your specific location. So uh, it, this makes a lot of sense when you think about it. But 320 degrees for me is not the same as 320 degrees for someone in New York City. Sure. Right? So they're bearing. My 12 o'clock, your 12 o'clock. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to learn how to take a bearing, Corinne. Okay. So you're going to take your compass Mm -hmm. and you're going to set it on the map. Yeah. And this is where that uh, base plate comes in handy with those straight edges. Yes. So you're going to take the straight edge of the base plate and line it up so that it draws a line between where you are and where you want to go. So this is why some people have a real long base plate. Yeah. So (laughs) a little bit longer base plate makes some sense. Even still, if you can get a straight line, you can like line up. Keep going. Yeah. You can extrapolate it out. But basically, you want it to draw a straight line towards the place that you're going. Okay. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. You want to make sure the direction of travel arrow is pointing in the general direction of the campsite. That's that arrow on the mm-hmm. top, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's pointing in the direction of the place you're going, you're set. Right. Now, you're going to rotate that bezel until the orienteering arrow, that's that outline of the compass, is aligned with the north-south. So you're going to take the arrow where the usually the red end, and you're going to make that line up with the north. So Okay, so yeah, you're not going to align it with the the actual compass. You're going to align it with the map. So the map itself has true north, mm. right or left, you know, lines all over it. Okay. So square. So the map is straight, right? Okay. The the side of the the compass, the line, the bearing line, right, is that pointing is in the direction pointed. you want to go. Okay. And then you're going to make north point actual true north. Okay. Once you've done that, the arrow that points direction is not going to be pointing due north usually. It'll be pointing... The direction you're going. The direction you're going, or the degree bearing you're going. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so in this from case, you, north, you're 300, I get. So saying. then your bearing line is you're going to be heading at 300 degrees, right? Or whatever, 220. You're going to need a video for this. There are a million videos on YouTube, but it's really not that hard. Mm-hmm. You could follow along. Are we going to do one of these things where we go? I'm, I'm going to just drop you off in the woods. You could drop me off in Rancho Cordova and I wouldn't know where I was. Now you're going to look at that index line, right? And that'll show you your bearing. Okay. Right? As we just said. So once you've got the north pointed actual north, true north mm-hmm. on the bezel, the line that you drew between, you know, where you are and where the you're headed. The direction you're headed. Will give you your bearing. 
That's the direction you will then use to get to a location. Does that make sense? So now anytime you're walking, you're going to make sure you're walking in that direction. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So you can then use this ability of taking a bearing to find where you are. So, so far we've talked about how to find directions from a place Who where you know you are. came up with the compass? Some real genius. I think the Chinese invented the compass this back in the day, This right? is freaking genius stuff. It is. So, we couldn't come up with this today. We I could tried. The last bit of pro compass tips here. So, so far we've talked about how to find a direction when you basically know where you are. Really useful for a compass, though, is figuring out where you are when you're freaking lost. Sure. So... You can use this ability to take a bearing and basically reverse engineer it to find where you are. All right. This is basically how to get unlost. So this is really important. Okay. Let's say you're out hiking and you get totally off the trail, right? Mm-hmm. Or you fo- you were hunting and you followed game, you know, and they the don't Cheryl's follow the trails. Trade and the trail disappeared from the snow and you got to find your way back. Sure. Or you just woke up after a long, like, hangover style evening in the middle of the woods with nothing but a map and compass and need to get home to see if you have a Mike Tyson style face tattoo. Is this what's happening to me tomorrow? Could be. <laughs> You know, being able to figure out where you are is important. Sure. So we've already talked about how to take a bearing, and using that skill, you can figure out where you are. What you're going to do, calm down. Anytime you're lost. First thing. First thing, calm down. Take out your compass and your map and try and locate a a landmark, right? So hopefully you're near something like Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Uh, Well, even if you're in a valley, it can be easy to spot specific mountains. Okay. Right? So if you have a general idea of where you are, it can be easier to pick them out. But finding a landmark that you know, and this is why it's important to know your surroundings, you know, in a general sense. You can say, oh, that's clearly the tallest mountain around. So you can look on your map and find, oh, well, I'm somewhere in this area and the tallest mountain is, you know, Mount Whitney. Great. Once you've found an identifiable landmark, you're going to take your compass, you're going to hold it flat. And you're going to take the direction of travel arrow, that's that stand, uh, that non-turning the, arrow, that's on the, the big one part. on the top, and pointing away from you and directly at the landmark. Okay. Right? So if you find the mountain, you're going to point that arrow, basically pointing from you to, to the, the landmark. landmark. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now you're going to rotate that bezel until the magnetized needle is inside the orienteering arrow. So now you're going to actually line it up like it links sense, so that the outline surrounds true north okay does that make sense yeah you're gonna look at the index line to read the bearing and that'll tell you how far off you are well that'll tell you the bearing to that mountain okay right you can transfer that bearing to your map to find your location you lay your compass on your map and align one corner to of the straight edge with the landmark right so basically you align the compass with the landmark on that bearing so that it would be pointing back towards you and you draw a straight line Mm mm-hmm you are going to be on that line somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? Yes. So, obviously, because compasses aren't 100% accurate, because as we said, there's you know not every sure. degree on there, this is where triangulation comes into oh, play. Okay. Well, think about it like this. We learned about if you find a second landmark, do the exact same thing, draw that line, right? Then if you find a third landmark... And do the same thing. So you know what area. What you're going to find is a small little triangle where the three lines kind of come close to one another. 
and you are more than likely in that little tiny triangle. So now you've went from being somewhere in the woods to in this specific quarter, sort of quarter mile area. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's going to be way easier to find your way out or to wherever you need to go. That's assuming you can find three landmarks. That's why it's important to know the mountain. Well, again, once you've seen the tallest mountain, then you can go to the second tallest mountain around or a lake or something else, right? Mm -hmm. But that's how you would triangulate your location, right? So if you, you can do this with just one location because you have a general idea of where you are. You can move along a line from there and figure out basically where you are. Uh, if you can do it with two locations, great. Three is really good because then you've got that like really kind of zeroed in area. Yeah. And if you do three and the triangle is huge... You know you've made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> One of those lines is not right. made a huge mistake. Go back. Try it again. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But that's really basic orienteering. Kind of hard, though. It requires practice. I need to... I feel like, yeah, this all makes sense, me watching you do this and describing it in perfect circumstances and air conditioning. You put me out there, even at Oakey Park right now at 95 degrees, I'm going to have some trouble. Like any skill, working with a compass requires you to practice it, right? Sure. So all these are pretty simple. There are tons of instructional YouTube videos that walk you through this and show you exactly how to do all of these steps that we've talked about. None of them are by themselves too terribly hard. Okay. You know, children and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and every other Scouts At least in the learn 90s. how to do it <laughs> all over the place, right? Actually, I found a really nice guide on the REI website. Okay. They had like how to use a compass and it showed all of these things step by step and they had a couple of videos as well. Again, YouTube, I'm sure, has a million of them or, you know, find your old Boy Scout manual, which is what I did as well. Um, you that has, still have it? Yeah. I have a bunch of old Boy Scout manuals, and they're very useful for these sort of skills. But uh, practice is the thing you need to do. You don't want the first time you try and orientate yourself to a map when you're totally lost. Lost in a snowstorm. Yeah, you don't want to be like, all right, now how do I find the declination? I listened to that <laughs> podcast one time, and they mediocre did it. So now that it's the nice summer and we all have to be socially distant, it's a great time to go take a hike and bring a compass and map Especially, it's really good to do it in a place where you really know the landscape. So, like, if you go out for a hike that's one of, your, like, your favorite hikes, mm -hmm. just add the compass and map into it. Okay. Then you're really confident with the landscape because you really do know the right direction. So, you know if you're right or wrong with your map. If you mm -hmm. say, oh, this like, thing's... Well, that can't be right. Exactly. You know you've made a mistake. So, pro tip for learning how to do it. Okay. And just practice, practice, practice. And it's a really, really good skill to have in your back pocket. Because if you have it and you have a compass and map, you can really always find out where you are. It's true. Um, so, you won't be lost and you'll stay survived. You're kind of making me want to do this skill. It seems like a cool skill. It I is. also was watching recently, okay, I'm going to deviate just slightly, a show on Netflix about these, like, six couples who get dropped into Alaska, oh, and yeah. they're fighting for a chance to win this, this like, house. Yeah, the land, I've seen that one, it's like, well, wild in Alaska yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 whatever that is, and this is just the sort of thing those couples would need to know. Yeah, so... Finding, you know, being able to read a compass, finding declination, finding your bearings. These are important skills to have. They're great prepper skills to get. They're cheap. Like, again, if you don't compass. even have a compass or a map, all told, you 50 bucks, you're done. You just go hit up done. your niece and you yeah. get one. You, and you can buy these maps that you need, those 7.5-minute maps. You know, you can buy them directly from the U.S. Geological Service website, or you can go to REI or any, like, local backpacking shop. So, like, you buy them at location. So yeah. if you go to, you know, if you're going to Yosemite, I guarantee you they're selling these, they these maps at, you know, that you need there. Um, and learning how to read them. So that's it for Orienteering 101. I feel like we should videotape us trying to do it. I'm going to videotape you doing it. No. <laughs> 
us, I said. All right. We, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll put it up somewhere. Help MJ get her a compass badge. Exactly. All right. That's our show for this week, guys. Thanks once Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, if you're lost in the woods and need us to go over orienteering one more time. Don't ask me. Yeah. Email us, uh, heatinguppodcast at gmail.com. If there's anything you want to talk about. Yeah. Again, like we said, we're always taking suggestions or comments. Uh, so, yeah. Even negatives. We'll listen to it. Yeah. We might discard it. Probably. Well... Give us your ideas for what we should do for our 50th episode. Oh, no. Yeah, something special. Okay. Maybe eat some of that beef jerky we've stored that we made <laughs> half a year ago. I think ago. that was eaten already. All right. Yeah, you'd think, but you're wrong. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>